Hello and welcome to Series 3, Episode 4 of Bad Gays, a podcast all about evil and complicated queer people in history. My name's Hugh Lemmy, I'm a writer and author. And I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher, and member of the board of the Schwules Museum in Berlin. And last week we talked about the Georgian ne'er-do-well, Lord Castlereagh. Who are we talking about this week, Ben? Well, today's episode uh, covers someone who has been a public figure in my life for as long as I can remember, and he definitely falls on the complicated side of evil and complicated for me. And this is also somebody who at one point uh, was really one of my heroes. Um, We're talking about the uh, longtime congressman, uh, Barney Frank. So I was always a kind of politically involved and interested kid. And growing up in the liberal suburbs of Boston, Massachusetts, the left wing of possibility was the Democratic Party. These specific Massachusetts suburbs, as the historian Lily Geismer has recently argued, belong at the center of the history of the transformation of the Democratic Party, away from its roots in labor union halls towards white-collar professionals. The suburbs along the high-tech corridor of Route 128 rose to wield extraordinary political power in Massachusetts. Geismer's recent history, entitled Don't Blame Us, focuses on school desegregation. In the city of Boston, school desegregation was one of the most divisive and vituperative political fights of the 20th century. After Brown v. Board of Education mandated integrated schools nationwide in 1954, school districts across the United States did everything in their power to prevent actual school integration. In the Boston area, the call for desegregation and its implementation led to a series of protests and race riots that brought national attention. In 1972, the NAACP filed a class-action lawsuit against the Boston School Committee, Morgan v. Hennigan, alleging racial segregation in the Boston public schools. Two years later, Judge Arthur Garrity Jr. of the United States District Court for the District of Massachusetts uh, found in favor of the NAACP, stating there was a recurring pattern of racial discrimination in the operation of the Boston public schools. He found that this was unconstitutional and required um, the implementation of the state's Racial Imbalance Act, which required any Boston school with a student enrollment that was more than 50% non-white to be balanced according to race. And as a remedy, he implemented a busing plan that had been uh, developed by the Massachusetts State Board of Education and then oversaw its implementation for the next 13 years. This ruling, which was upheld by the United States Court of Appeals for the First Circuit and by the Supreme Court, required schoolchildren to be bused to different schools to end segregation. The busing plan affected the entire city, although the working-class neighborhoods of the racially divided city, whose, those are the children who predominantly went to public schools, were the ones that were the most affected. Irish-American neighborhoods like West Roxbury, Roslindale, Hyde Park, Charlestown, and South Boston, Italian-American neighborhoods like the North End, and the predominantly black neighborhoods of Roxbury, Mattapan, and the South End, and the neighborhood of Dorchester, which is mixed but segregated racially. Boston, to this day, is one of the most segregated cities in the United States of America based on race. In one part of the plan, just to sort of show how this kind of seg- uh, busing uh, worked, Uh, Judge Garrity decided that the entire junior class from the mostly white South Boston High School would be bused to Roxbury High School, which was a black high school. Half the sophomores from each school would attend the other, and seniors could decide what school to attend. Um, 
the first day of the plan, only 100 of 1,300 students came to school at South Boston High School, and only 13 of the 550 white South Boston juniors ordered to attend the predominantly black Roxbury School even showed up. Wow. Parents showed up every day to protest. Football season was canceled. White students and black students began entering through different doors, and an anti-busing mass movement developed, which was called Roar, Restore Our Alienated Rights. There were a number of protest incidents that turned violent. In one case, the attorney Theodore Landsmark was attacked and bloodied by a group of white teenagers as he exited City Hall. One of those teenagers attacked Landsmark with an American flag, and there's a photograph of that attack called the Soiling of Old Glory, which became a kind of emblem of this moment of racist violence in the city of Boston. Oh yeah, it's that that soiled the American flag. In a retaliatory incident about two weeks later, uh, some black teenagers in Roxbury attacked a white auto mechanic, Richard Polite. Uh, they dragged him out of his car, crushed his skull with paving stones, and when police arrived, uh, he was surrounded by a crowd of a hundred chanting, let him die, while lying in a coma from which he never recovered. Oh, Louise Day Hicks, a Boston school committee member and the wealthy daughter of a wealthy and prominent attorney and judge, seized this political opportunity presented by resistance to integration. By refusing to admit that segregation existed in city schools, and by declaring that liberals were making children the, quote, pawns of racial politics, she came to personify the discord that existed between some working-class white and African Americans. Um, it's a long tradition of uh, wealthy white people attempting to play on uh, and increase and uh, exploit racial tension for their own benefit. Boston schools, she said, are, quote, a scapegoat for those who have failed to solve the housing, economic, and social problems of the black citizen. She once said, while a large part of my vote probably does come from bigoted people, I know I'm not bigoted. <laughs> so the suburban liberals uh, in the towns like the place where I grew up looked on in horror as all of this occurred. Um, they voted for... Democrats, they voted for liberal Democrats, and there was kind of a tension between um, a rising class of more liberal um, suburban Democrats and kind of white working class Democrats who opposed uh, desegregation, who opposed um, busing. But those same suburbs, of course, were completely complicit in the segregation of public education. They would shudder when working-class whites attacked black people in the streets, but even last year, 40 years on, the schools in my town, which has a border with the city of Boston, were 4.6% African-American by enrollment and 65% white, while Boston schools were 30% black and 14% white. This kind of segregation, segregation by city or town, which means segregation by property values and social class, segregation which does not perfectly mirror but which intersects with and reinforces segregation based on race, is far more pernicious and is rendered invisible by a shallow suburban politics of diversity. Everyone in my hometown would tell you how much they value diversity, but none of them would consider merging the public schools with the far more diverse, far worse-funded system in Boston just next door. Instead, as Geismer shows in her history, they created and endorsed a program called METCO, a voluntary desegregation program in which small numbers of black students from Boston are brought out to schools in the suburbs. METCO is great for many of the families that it serves, but is also a band-aid on a bleeding flesh wound, and one that was far less threatening to white liberals than actual desegregation. 
So if it seems strange to be starting an episode about a gay congressman with a long story about school desegregation in which he is not directly implicated, here's the point. Barney Frank, a congressman representing the Route 128 suburbs, rose to political power as part of the 1970s and 1980s transformation of the Democratic Party away from labor and towards the professional classes. Despite an early career scandal around his homosexuality setting him back, he managed to rise to prominence in the Democratic Party, defining its left flank with witty one-liners, even as he pursued financial policies that directly contributed to the 2008 crash. After the crash, as one of the largest recipients of Wall Street donations and the chair of the powerful House Financial Services Committee, he helped craft the inadequate legislative response to the crisis. The 2008 crisis was intimately related to questions of race, housing, segregation, and integration, and as a gay man, he self-consciously embodied a kind of diversity that allowed these deeper structural questions to go unanswered. And again, the argument here is not that diversity or integration on the base of race or sex or sexual orientation or anything else is necessarily uh, in conflict with um, a broader kind of politics of justice, but instead that uh, in the context of the Democratic Party since the 1970s and 1980s, these other kinds of diversity have come to stand in for and in some cases conceal um, politics which um, do nothing to help and in fact often hinder that broader fight for justice. So Barney Frank was born in Bayonne, New Jersey in 1940 and was one of four children of Elsie and Samuel Frank, who's a Jewish family with immigrants from uh, Eastern Europe, from Poland and Russia. His father ran a truck stop in Jersey City. Um, and when young Barney was just six years old, his father served a year in prison for refusing to testify to a grand jury against his uncle. So it's kind of a mafia truck stop and Jewish mafia truck stop in Jersey City. Uh, Barney did well in school. He went to Harvard, just like uh, our recent subject, Mayor Pete. His undergraduate studies were interrupted when his father passed away. Um, and uh, in 1964, he went to Mississippi to volunteer during Freedom Summer. He began studying for a PhD in government at Harvard, but left in 1968 to become uh, the chief assistant to Mayor Kevin White of Boston, which is a position he held for three years. And I want to stop and put Kevin White a little bit into the context of Boston politics of the 1970s and 80s um, that I was just talking about with school desegregation. Uh, Kevin White was one of this sort of generation of liberal 1960s and 1970s mayors in the United States. You also think about John Lindsay, the mayor of New York City, and he presided as mayor during those um, racially divisive uh, years of the late 1960s and the 1970s and that start of school desegregation via court-ordered busing. He won the mayoral office in the general election of 1967 against Louise Day Hicks. Um, in that general election, uh, the two of them made it to the runoff, and White only very narrowly defeated Hicks, who was anti-desegregation, and her slogan was, You Know Where I Stand. Now, despite being obviously the less racist of those two choices, um, Kevin White's mayoralty also, also sort of demonstrates some of the limits of this kind of liberal politics. Uh, while Barney Frank uh, described uh, White being called Mayor Black by some whites because he would actually openly admit that there was a racial discrimination problem in the city of Boston, the longtime social and racial justice activist Mel King had this to say about his mayoralty, quote, I don't know where Kevin White was when we were having the people in South Boston and East Boston and other places who were railing out against the desegregation order. 
I think it's important for people to understand that the leadership in the white community was very scarce around this issue. In 1977, Frank went back to Harvard where he got a degree in law, studying with Henry Kissinger, and began his service as a Massachusetts state representative. He made a name for himself uh, by defending the Combat Zone, which at that time was a notorious red light district in the city of Boston. He introduced a bill that would have legalized sex work, but kept it quarantined in a red light district. The bill uh, had the support of the police commissioner of Boston, but never came up for a vote. In 1979, he was admitted to the Massachusetts State Bar, and in 1980 ran for the seat in the U.S. House of Representatives that was vacated by Father Robert Drynan, who had left Congress following uh, the call by Pope John Paul II for priests to recall uh, to withdraw from political positions. Interestingly enough, there were a lot of elected priests in the U.S., and the call was only issued uh, sort of specifically to target Father Drynan because Father Drynan was a left-wing voice and was pro-abortion. In the Democratic primary, uh, Frank won 52% of the vote, and he faced one of the only competitive elections he would ever face in his district, winning narrowly in the general election 52 to 48%. It's a very Democratic district, but the 1980 fall elections were also the elections in which Ronald Reagan swept into power, uh, winning a sort of landslide majority against the unpopular incumbent, Jimmy Carter. So the Massachusetts 4th District, which was Frank's district, is anchored in the liberal suburbs of Newton and Brookline, and then hooks down to include Jewish enclaves in Sharon, the stately mansions of Milton, and working-class immigrant communities on the south coast of Massachusetts in Fall River and New Bedford. Despite being a Democratic stronghold, the district has almost always been represented by politicians from the wealthier suburban north, and this mirrors the kind of composition of the Democratic electorate now, where a combination of suburban liberals and uh, working-class people of color in which the suburban liberals tend to speak for and over the working-class people of color that they also represent. Frank would not face another serious race for another quarter century. Uh, He won every election from 1984 to 2008 with at least 67% of the vote. So Barney Frank shows up in Washington. He's ambitious. He's from a safe Democratic district, and he's very funny. I'm going to pause to give some classic Barney Frank one-liners throughout his career. Once, when a Lyndon LaRouche supporter compared Obamacare to Nazism, he replied, I'm going to revert to my ethnic heritage and answer your question with a question. On what planet do you spend most of your time? (laughs) Trying to have a conversation with you would be like trying to have a conversation with a dining room table. I have no interest in doing it. (laughs) I also highly encourage our listeners to look up video of Barney Frank speaking. He has a voice that makes Bernie Sanders sound like a radio announcer. Um, When, here's a name, Hugh, Dick Army. Dick Army. Dick Army, at the time Republican House Majority Leader, referred to him in 1995 as Barney Fag and then dismissed it as a slip of the tongue. Frank responded, I turned to my own expert, my mother, who reports that in 59 years of marriage, no one ever introduced her as Elsie Fag. Sorry, but if your name is Dick Army, you shouldn't be making jokes about other people having gay names. Yeah, uh, Dick Armies shouldn't throw stones at (laughs) Dick Armies. Um... Frank once said, uh, gay people have a different role than other minority groups. Very few black kids have ever had to worry about telling their parents that they're black. Of his Republican congressional opponents, he said, they're saying that my ability to marry another man somehow jeopardizes heterosexual marriage, then they go out and cheat on their wives. Fair point. He said of Newt Gingrich, who had a consulting company, the Gingrich Group, I assumed that referred to all of his wives. (laughs) Um, 
talking about the war in Iraq and problems with uh, military intelligence. He said the problem with the war in Iraq wasn't the intelligence, it was the stupidity. And his most famous one-liner was his rebuke of conservative opponents of abortion rights. He said their concern for life begins with conception and ends with birth. So he's a newly elected congressman. He's still closeted. And in the mid-1980s, he begins to rise through the ranks of House Democrats. And then on April Fool's Day, 1985, he answered an ad in the Washington Blade, which was the D.C. Gay Weekly. And the ad read, quote, Exceptionally good-looking, personable, muscular athlete is available. Hot bottom plus large endowment equals a good time. I would have answered that as well. I mean, um, he was then 45 years old in his third term. Uh, he was still closeted, as we said, and he paid that person who placed the ad, Steve Gobi, an escort $80 in cash for sex. Gobi, who was then 28, uh, had been born in Boston, grew up in a military family, and at that point had felony convictions for possession of cocaine, oral sodomy, and production of obscene items involving a juvenile. The two of them became friends and sexual partners. Um, Gobi attended a bill signing at the White House and helped coach and played left field for Barney Frank's Congressional Softball League team. Was he a pitcher or a catcher? Uh, we don't know if he was a pitcher or a catcher. He did tell the Washington Post that he was the star player. Uh, Frank also began to help Gobi financially, paying his attorney and court-ordered psychiatrist, and he hired Gobi as a personal aide, housekeeper, and driver. Gobi later said that that was a cover story concocted for probation officers. This is like very Liberace. It is, and it's also very, I mean, it's not evil twink syndrome, it's like evil hunk syndrome. Yeah. Evil hunk energy. Um... In late 1985, Gobi began to use Frank's D.C. apartment for sex work. He claimed that Frank knew what he was doing. Uh, Gobi later told the Washington Post, quote, It was pretty obvious. If he had to come home early from work, he would call home to be sure the coast was clear. He was living vicariously through me. He said it was kind of a thrill, and if he'd been 20 years younger, he might be doing the same thing. Um, Frank denies that he knew, and he said that he learned from his landlord and kicked Gobi out in August of 1987. So when this scandal hits the media in the late 1980s, and I just want to pause for a minute and say we can laugh about this now, but it's important to recognize how terrifying and horrifying to experience a scandal would have been for someone like Barney Frank. And it's also important to remember that on issues of public morality, Frank was entirely consistent. Washington culture had been filled with sex work, extramarital affairs, corruption, theft, and bribery by moral campaigners, and none of that was ever as much of a public scandal as this sexy gay secret. So we should laugh, but... This is not why we think Frank was uh, potentially a bad gay, um, and many people have done much worse and faced many fewer consequences, many straight people, many straight Christian people. Um, the current uh, number two in command of the House Republicans very clearly had a part in uh, concealing the uh, sexual assault of many underaged men by a wrestling coach, Google Jim Jordan, look it up. And Dennis Hastert, a... Uh, moral rights campaigning right-wing Republican who uh, followed the multiply married Catholic conservative Newt Gingrich uh, in uh, the office of head of the Republicans in the House um, is currently in jail as a convicted sex offender against children. Look it up. So, uh, Have you got anything on Dick Army? Uh, only the name. So by 1989, uh, Frank had been pushed out of the closet by this affair, and he did confirm that he paid Gobi for sex, hired him with personal funds as an aide, and wrote letters on congressional stationery on his behalf to probation officers. Um, he likened himself to Henry Higgins, 
saying that like in Pygmalion, he had tried to transform somebody into kind of a good <laughs> member of society. Um, Gobi, a gay reference. Gobi in the Washington Post dismissed that as, quote, garbage. Quote, this is not the case of the poor waif who is being sheltered, Gobi said. This was the first time he felt good in a relationship. Here's a guy who didn't have a social life until he was 45. So here's how Barney Frank remembered this time in a later essay for Politico. Quote, I was scared. I was ready to come out, but not at his hands, not in that way, and not at that time. This led to two important conversations in the early summer of 1986. The first was with Speaker Tip O'Neill, my fellow Democratic congressman from Massachusetts. As a great admirer of his leadership, I felt obligated to let him know that there might be another sex-related controversy in our party that he'd have to handle. I approached him on the floor of the House. Tip, I said, Bob Bauman has just written a book that says I'm gay. Ah, oh, Barney, he consoled me, don't pay any attention. People are always spreading shit about us. But Tip, I said, the problem is that it's true. He looked stricken, though he immediately made it clear it was not my sexuality that troubled him, but the impact it would have on my career. I'm sorry to hear it, he said. I thought that you might become the first Jewish speaker. Later in the same story, he's talking about Tip O'Neill, and he says, uh, Meanwhile, O'Neill set about warning his press secretary, Chris Matthews. Chris, he said, we might have an issue to deal with. I think Barney Frank is going to come out of the room. <laughs> so uh, he consulted with gay movement leaders and sort of planned this coming out process, and the Boston Globe ended up sending one of its gay reporters to ask if he was gay, and he responded, yeah, so what? So this frank and humorous response in his liberal district meant that he did beat back the scandal, though he never fully recovered, and he was never again a serious candidate for either higher office or for House Le Speaker or Majority Leader or any other leadership role. He asked the House Ethics Committee to investigate this relationship, and they found no evidence that he had known or been involved in the illegal activity. They did uh, recommend a reprimand for Frank using his office to fix some parking tickets, and the House voted 408 to 18 to reprimand him. After coming out, he became the first gay congressman to begin a male partner, the more appropriate Washington staffer Herb Moser, to public events. He would later write, quote, My rule was simple. Wherever congressional spouses were invited, so was Herb. I did not have to argue the matter with my colleagues in the House. Herb was authorized to wear the same pin that was given to other spouses as a form of identification inside the Capitol. So until this point, we've basically entirely talking, uh, been entirely talking about the heroic aspect, I think, of Barney Frank's career. Um, and now we're going to start getting into the stuff that brings us more into complicated territory. He published numerous articles on politics and public affairs, and in 1992, he published a book called Speaking Frankly, which was a book about what the Democratic Party should do in the 1990s. And at this point, the party was reeling, having lost the 1980, 1984, and 1988 presidential elections um, on the mistaken, uh, it was sort of mistakenly thought that they had lost them by being too liberal or too left-wing. Uh, Michael Dukakis, the 1988 nominee, was no one's idea of a left-wing uh, person, but that was kind of the line that was taken. And um, while Frank would always uh, proudly identify as a gay left-wing Jew, um, the book suggested that Democrats kept losing presidential races because they would cave into their leftist base um, and suggested that they move to the center in order to win votes and support. In 1992, the year the book was published, the centrist Bill Clinton squeaked through a three-way election and cemented the control of centrists over the Democratic Party. And again, this is where we see the beginning of this pattern of Barney Frank kind of using the fact that he was a loud and unkempt and um, hated by conservatives figure in order to kind of sheepdog the left into believing that there was no alternative. 
And this book uh, was only the beginning of a long career of punching left and discrediting left-wing politicians and politics. He would later remember of Bill Clinton, quote, Clinton's support for lifting the gay military ban was only one reason that I endorsed him for the nomination and campaigned actively on his behalf. At the time, many on the left believed that he was too moderate. But I had decided by then that I needed to be more pragmatic in my approach to intraparty contests. After I'd made the egregious error of opposing Dukakis in 1978, and after I'd urged Ted Kennedy to run against Jimmy Carter in the mistaken belief that my unhappiness with Carter's moderate stance was widely shared among Democrats, I consciously adopted the strategic approach I would follow for the rest of my career, to always support the most electable liberal candidates with an edge in close cases going to electability. And then you get to this question of how you define electability in American or any other politics. And for Frank, electability became defined by proximity to the right. Clinton, despite his promises on gays in the military, would switch face on gays in the military, backing down under right-wing pressure and enacting a policy called Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And this is a policy under which uh, LGBT service members would face dismissal if they were discovered uh, in any way activity that exposed their sexual orientation or their gender identity, even totally outside of their military duties. So people... Um, could be blackmailed, uh, people could be discovered having sex off-duty, and it would have uh, harsh consequences. They would immediately be dishonorably discharged. Frank said that he was disappointed that Clinton uh, proposed the policy as an advance for gay rights, but did say, quote, Despite Don't Ask, Don't Tell's deleterious impact, I did not regard Clinton as an enemy who held out false promise, but as a friend who had tried to help us and failed. Again, centrists get uh, all of this kind of benefit of the doubt. Mm. We we assume uh, in this worldview that they are trying and that this is the best that they can do. And so you see um, you see this kind of pattern developing. Um, between 1994 and 2006, the Democrats had the minority in the House of Representatives, and so he spent a long time in the House minority where his record was fairly good. He was opposed to the war in Iraq, um, and in 2006, when the Democrats came back into office, he became chair of the House Financial Services Committee. Committee chairs in Washington are very powerful. Um, they are awarded to members who have been there the longest. They're awarded based on seniority. Um, and so Frank had been in Congress the longest and um, was appointed to that committee based on his uh, loyalty to the party and based on his kind of hard work. At one of his first uh, incoming press conferences, um, the new as chairman, uh, Frank reiterated uh, his call for what he called a grand bargain, where he said he wanted lobbyists and Republicans to accept efforts to raise the minimum wage and make it easier for workers to unionize in exchange for Democrats' votes in more deregulation and more uh, trade agreements that had no wage or environmental or human rights protections. Frank's quote was, quote, I don't expect people on the left to be jubilant when I talk about working with the business community on some of the things they have been working for, like more foreign trade and outsourcing. And I know that it's going to give a lot of people in the business community heartburn to talk about letting people join unions by card check. Now, card check um, is still not has still not been enacted. It was not even enacted by Democrats when they held unitary control over uh, federal government 2008-2010, which is... Um, atrocious, atrocious both in terms of ethics and also atrocious in terms of strategy. Card check would dramatically strengthen unions in the United States by making it much easier for workers to uh, trigger union elections and to hold those union elections. Um, it's the kind of thing that would uh, make unions stronger and would actually make it easier for more Democrats to get elected because unions support Democrats. It's the kind of thing where Republicans do this stuff all the time. You have these reforms that then actually strengthen your ability to take and hold power 
and because Democrats are not interested in taking or holding power, uh, but instead by playing by the rules of an imaginary game, um, they don't do things like this, and uh, or they end up insisting that these things need to be traded somehow for um, trade packs with no wage protections that are going to undermine the same unions they would be supporting even if they put through card check, which they didn't. They approved trade deals for President Bush when they were in power, and they did not get card check through or any other improvements in the union climate in the United States. Another place where Frank's um, tendency towards this kind of compromise was really visible was in a rather shameful 2007 attempt to pass a bill called the uh, Employment Non-Discrimination Act. The current version of this bill is called the Equality Act. Uh, Frank was one of the congressional leaders who uh, actively promoted the idea that maybe if you just cut trans people out of the bill, you would get it through um, the Senate more easily, and it might get the signature of President George W. Bush. Of course, that was not true, um, but what it did end up doing was once again sell uh, selling trans people down the river to achieve uh, limited rights for middle-class gay and lesbian people. So now's where we begin to get into Frank's record of action, both before in terms of contributing to potentially and after in terms of responding to the 2008 subprime lending uh, crisis and the resultant financial crash and great recession. Um, Frank was singled out by a lot of Republicans who had enthusiastically worked for some of the worst deregulations of the financial industry uh, in the period from about 1980 to 2008 as being somehow single-handedly responsible. So what I want to emphasize here is that especially in the run-up to the crisis, Frank was no more responsible and in fact much less responsible than the Republicans who A, were actually in control of Congress and therefore financial regulations during that time. Um, and even some other Democrats who had voted with Republicans for more of the deregulations. But Frank, as a very powerful uh, Democrat working in um, financial regulation, did certainly play his role. And that role was being kind of a bridge between uh, what was seen to be the left wing of the Democratic Party and the financial industry. So as early as 2003, Frank began to receive reports questioning uh, the solvency of the mortgage market, giving expanding portfolios and increasing reliance on risky investments. But Frank continued to defend the lenders, including the federally overseen Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and did not take any action to rein them in until he became chair of the committee in January 2007. Um, by the time his bill requiring tighter restrictions uh, passed, it was too late. Those lenders had bought a lot of risky mortgages and were already on the road to failure. Uh, in an interview with the Boston Globe, uh, Frank would acknowledge that he had seen the problems too late, and he said that he had been wearing ideological blinders and was worried that Republicans were going after Fannie and Freddie, which were federally overseen, for ideological anti-government reasons. I was late in seeing it, he said. Uh, no question. He was criticized by this, again, by Republicans who had done even worse, uh, which is a horrifying, horrifying, horrifying hypocrisy, but he too was bought off, if to a lesser extent than the alternative, and this is the great charm of American electoral politics. Then in 2008, the financial meltdown hit. The crisis began in 2007 with depreciation in the subprime mortgage market in the United States and turned into an international banking crisis with the collapse of Lehman Brothers, the investment bank, on September 15, 2008. Excessive risk-taking by banks magnified the global financial impact and enormous bailouts were employed to prevent a collapse of the world financial system. Um, just to give some sort of dates of how this all played out, um, 
September 7th was when uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac went from being federally overseen to being taken over by the federal government. September 15th, 08, is when Lehman Brothers goes bankrupt. September 16th is when AIG is taken over by the Federal Reserve. Um, September 21st is when Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley have to convert themselves into a different kind of company in order to increase their government protections. Uh, September 26th is when Washington Mutual goes bankrupt. September 29th, the House of Representatives rejects the first bailout and the Dow drops 777 points, which is its largest single-day decline ever. October 3rd, the bailout passes. Um, and then um, the President Obama comes in in January 2009. Uh, two of the big three automobile manufacturers revealed uh, received bailouts from the TARP bailout program. And it was not until March 6, 2009, that the Dow hit its lowest level. So this is a massively serious uh, financial crash. And you've got an experienced legislator in Barney Frank as chair of the House Financial Services Committee. You have a newly elected president, Barack Obama, who was elected partially in uh, sort of mass movement disgust at the uh, financial crisis, at its effects, um, and at the corruption of the Bush administration. In 2008, at this moment of peak crisis, a former Republican representative named Steve Bartlett, who had served with Frank and was now lobbying him as head of the Financial Services Roundtable, again, the charm of American <laughs> politics is that there's a complete revolving door where all these people turn into lobbyists, he said, quote, the fact that Barney Frank is chairman of Financial Services and Hank Paulson is treasury secretary is, as far as individual leadership, probably the only thing keeping the system running right now. Hank Paulson uh, was, like most Treasury secretaries have been in recent years, a former high, uh, high executive at Goldman Sachs. And you have, so you have someone here who's on uh, supposedly on the left wing of the Democratic Party and who is being vilified by Republican leaders um, partially because uh, he's gay and Jewish and from Massachusetts and a liberal and all these things. Um, and he's someone who in a way converts that hatred into a clout that he's then able to use to uh, get some of this stuff through without more resistance from the movement left, if that makes any sense. Um, Bush would have had a much harder time getting his bailouts through Congress without Frank's help. Frank spent a huge amount of time and energy explaining the need for the legislation. He aggressively defended the bill. Um, he, uh, When um, the minority leader, John Boehner, suggested that um, – House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's speech on the floor had been too partisan and therefore turned off Republicans, and that was why the first bailout hadn't passed. Uh, Frank said at a press conference, quote, because somebody hurt their feelings, they decide to punish the country. I'll make an offer. Give me those 12 people's names, and I will go talk uncharacteristically nice to them and tell them what wonderful people they are, and maybe they'll now think about the country. Uh, a left-wing Democrat named Brad Sherman uh, made a joke at a Democratic caucus meeting that uh, Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson, Hank Paulson, was just Bush without the hair, and Frank shouted him down uh, in that meeting. So he's a really sort of fighting left-wing opponents of some of this bailout legislation. He had the liberal bona fides to give political cover to the rescue bill, which a lot of Americans saw as a bailout for Wall Street executives, and it was, and there was very, very little oversight of any kind written into that bill. Uh, Francis Creighton, who was the chief lobbyist for the Mortgage Bankers Association, said, and I quote, that is, I think, a major reason why the bill passed into law, because Barney Frank credentialed it with people who would generally never support something like this. So as the crisis continued, Frank, uh, Frank continued to try to bridge the gap between liberals and the financial industry. Um, 
he did bring some legislation forward to try to impose some strings on bailout money. Uh, but even in his proposal, um, while it restricted executive bonuses, it did not restrict executive compensation. So uh, Wall Street CEOs were paying themselves their enormous salaries and bonuses out of this bailout money. Um, and even though Frank wanted some of the bailout money to be used to help directly with homeowners and foreclosure law, um, he in no way proposed an intervention into the uh, vast illegal conspiracies uh, that were involved that were going on in uh, foreclosures at that time. Uh, there's a book about this by the journalist David Diane called Chain of Title. And basically, um, all of these mortgages that had uh, blown up, all of these mortgages that had gone underwater and blown up, um, were had been sold and resold and bought and sold and turned into so many financial instruments. They had been converted so many times that it was totally impossible in most cases to establish an actual chain of title, chain of ownership between the original purchase of the house and the mortgage that you got from whatever lender and whatever strange financial product made out of um, you know, 0.2% of a thousand blended mortgages was now going belly up. And so banks at this time were engaging in mass document forgery. This is true. This is borne out by – this is not a conspiracy theory. This is borne out by journalism. Mass document forgery in order to actually um, get these foreclosures through the courts and kick people out of their homes. And Frank and the Democrats in the Obama administration uh, did nothing about this. There was actually an attempt by a group of state attorneys general to uh, intervene into this. And basically it would have uh, – if it had gone through, it would have put a stop to foreclosures and basically said to banks, like, you can't do this. These documents aren't real. And it would have kept people in their homes. Um, that was stopped by the Obama administration uh, and its attorney general, Eric Holder, uh, who insisted that they were going to come up with their own settlement that protected homeowners' rights. Um, while some limited money was given out to try to help people stay in their homes, it was nothing on the scale that actually stopping all of the foreclosures based on this sort of rampant illegality uh, would have achieved. And it's actually been shown that in counties that had a really high percentage of people who were kicked out of their homes based on these um, based on these illegal foreclosures, those were some of the counties that had one of the highest percentages of people who went from voting for Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012 to Donald Trump in 2016. He's surprised. Not me. Um, and the bailout uh, was so poorly uh, managed and was so full of outrageous uh, things that it actually ended up launching the career of another Massachusetts politician, Elizabeth Warren, who became chairwoman of the uh, TARP oversight panel. I don't think that any of the people who put her on that panel really quite knew what they were getting into. Um, and she launched her political career by criticizing bank spending, bonuses, and high salaries to the CEO of failed banks that the United States government had actually effectively purchased. I think we bought them and we should have just kept them. Um, so uh, Frank, uh, during his uh, two years in Congress from 2008 to 2010, and then his last term, 2010, 2012, spent a lot of time uh, writing the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act, which was a federal law that was enacted uh, in July of 2010. And this law was a response to the financial crash which made changes affecting all federal financial regulatory agencies in every part of the financial services industry. Uh, President Barack Obama had uh, demanded a, quote, sweeping overhaul of the financial regulatory system and a transformation on a scale not, sent, not seen since the reforms that followed the Great Depression. Uh, the problem here was that uh, the same President Obama had staffed his entire cabinet with J.P. Morgan Chase and Goldman Sachs alums 
who did everything possible to stop the uh, enactment of any legislation that would have actually seriously changed practices on Wall Street. You can decide whether you think President Obama was lying to the public or criminally naive. The Dodd-Frank Act did very little to structurally alter the financial system. It did not break up the big banks, and it did not restore the so-called Glass-Steagall wall between commercial and investment banking. Uh, instead, it attempted to stabilize the system that had failed by using stronger oversight and adding some regulatory tools. Uh, because reformers, uh, they claimed, lacked the votes to write clear rules into the legislation, a lot of the details were left to executive agencies. Uh, which meant that industry could then lobby executive agencies behind closed doors to write very favorable rules. A lot of these Dodd-Frank rules are still being written now, and so a lot of them now are being uh, changed by the Trump administration as they're being written, and so that you can just undo even the limited gains made in the law by simply having the executive agency rewrite the rule. Um, the left-wing commentator and uh, financial analyst Doug Henwood uh, wrote, quote, while Dodd-Frank changed the way Wall Street does business to some extent, bankers did head off the biggest threats. Banks will be required to boost their capital. Uh, one point, the capital requirements mandated are in the range possessed by Lehman Brothers before it went under, so clearly that's not much of a guarantee of anything. Banks were forced to stop trading on their own accounts and were required to spin off part of their derivatives businesses, which put what he called something of a firewall between those activities and the federal safety net that oversees bank deposits. But again, a lot of that specific, a lot of the specifics of the rules, the stuff that actually give it teeth had to be written by uh, federal agencies after the bill was passed. Uh, bank regulators were given the power to wind down large institutions before they went under, but a uh, tax on the banks of $19 billion to prepay the cost of winding them down was actually dropped by the House on the same day that the House, and again, the House controlled by Democrats at this time, killed an effort to extend unemployment benefits. And then the Democrats wondered why they lost in 2010. Um, included in the bill was um, a proposal for a consumer financial protection agency that originated with Elizabeth Warren. Uh, the institution, however, was not independent, but was housed within the Federal Reserve, which is an institution that is not particularly known for its attentiveness to uh, Main Street consumers as opposed to Wall Street bankers. So after an unexpectedly close re-election campaign in 2010, which was a wipeout year for Democrats, only two years after they swept to power, wonder why, um, he spent, he, uh, he decided to retire from the House uh, at the conclusion of uh, his term in 2012. And he has spent his post-congressional career continuing to play on his image as a liberal firebrand to urge moderation. He was a strong supporter of the Clinton 2008 and 2016 presidential campaigns. In 2016, he said, quote, You absolutely shouldn't be surprised by my view, given that I am foretaking the most liberal position you can win on, that Sanders cannot win the presidency. I don't think having an intra-party fight is helpful. I want to win the presidency. We're fighting Republicans now, saying, how dare you call the president a socialist? There isn't the remotest chance of Sanders winning. Of the people who voted for Bernie Sanders and of people who criticized the Democrats for their time in power, he said, quote, I am disappointed by the voters who say, okay, I'm just going to show you how angry I am. And I am particularly unimpressed with people who sat out the congressional elections of 2010 and 2014 and are then angry at Democrats because we haven't been able to produce policies they like. They contributed to the public policy programs, and now they are blaming other people for their own failure to vote. And then it's like, oh, look at this terrible system, but it was their voting behavior that brought it about. 
to paraphrase Brecht, he should dissolve the electorate and vote in a more liberal one. <laughs> yes, and I mean, and the, the incredible thing is that the precise kinds of people who didn't vote in 2010 are people who, or people who maybe had voted for Democrats thinking there would be some change and then voted for Republicans who ran on a message in 2010 of how corrupt all of this had been, even though the Republicans were themselves more corrupt. Um, those people were precisely put off by things like um, the bailout uh, having given so much money to top executives. They were put off by things like not extending unemployment benefits and extend and instead um, instead extending all these uh, extending all these protections to to banks and to CEOs. I mean, imagine if uh, in the middle of the crisis, uh, Obama had gone around the countries doing rallies and said, you know, I am literally stopping the banks from foreclosing on a single other home because they've com they've committed mass illegalities. Yeah. I don't think the Democrats would have lost two years later. Um when he heard that Bernie Sanders was criticizing Dodd-Frank for not um, for not going too far, when he heard that Bernie Sanders had said the business model of Wall Street is corruption, he said, quote, well, if that's the case, he's even dumber than I thought. The financial system is people lending money to other people so they can do things. I do think that he overstates it when he says they're all corrupt. It's simply not true. And by the way, when it comes to specifics, the only specific I have heard is Glass-Steagall, which makes very little change in the financial system. And it would it would make a big difference. That's why both uh, Senator Sanders and Senator Warren are for Glass-Steagall, which would separate consumer and investment banking to stop financial risk from becoming systemic. This is basic stuff. There are even some libertarian Republicans who are for Glass-Steagall. It is hardly a um, it is hardly a radical left wing position. And just a few weeks ago, he was named co-chairman of the DNC Rules Committee, so he'll be around this summer for whatever fun goes on in Milwaukee. So now it's time to turn back to the quote with which we opened and to think about Barney Frank's place in Democratic Party politics. Again, the Route 128 suburbs which he represented were an emblematic place where the transition from the Democrats as a party of the working class to a party of upper class professionals and minority groups spoken for or over but never invited to conceive of their own collective liberation was born. Frank's minority status and wit made him an icon of left-wing politics in the U.S. At the same time that he was using that credibility to urge moderation, whip left votes for bills supported by financial lobbyists and Bush administration officials, and following a wave election of anger in 2008, pursuing a response to the financial crisis that did not fundamentally shift the economic bargain in the U.S. and that let the financial industry totally off the hook. Barney Frank was once a hero of mine. As my politics have moved to the left, and as I have become more informed, it has been hard to shake my affection for him. His presence in the world made it easier for me to be who I was. Here was a model of a witty, successful, powerful gay man who had seemingly succeeded on the power of his convictions. The truth behind that story is profoundly disappointing. Barney Frank's career coincided with a particularly craven moment in American political history, one in which opposition essentially disappeared. In that context, was he the worst politician in the United States or anything close to it? No. The worst Democrat, even? Certainly not. But the relationship between his sexuality and his role as the sheepdog of the party's left flank, and between the suburbs he represented and the rise of a Democratic Party committed to shallow visions of diversity make him a profoundly troubling and troubled figure. In the south of his old district are post-industrial cities like Fall River and New Bedford, cities with large immigrant populations and high unemployment, cities where the trade deals he voted for helped clear out manufacturing in the 1980s and 1990s. The Democratic Party that Barney Frank and his fellow suburban liberals helped shape did nothing for those cities, where median household income is $30,000 lower than the Massachusetts state average, 
as opposed to the median household income of $60,000 above the state average in the suburbs where Frank lives. The version of the Democratic Party he helped shape is the same Democratic Party whose first black president oversaw the largest destruction of black wealth in the history of the republic, the same Democratic Party whose members say an independent socialist isn't a real Democrat, but are happy to vote for a racist and misogynist former Republican billionaire. The same Democratic Party which abandoned the people who had voted for it in anger after the 2008 crash, and then blamed their ingratitude for its losses of power. And the same Democratic Party whose ideal suburban political subjects sat pretty in their towns founded on racial and social apartheid, and looked on with horror at working-class whites, who fall prey to wealthy politicians using racism to divide and conquer. And that's the story of Barney Frank. We're on season three of our show, and we can't believe how much support we get from our listeners. Thank you so much to those of you who already support our Patreon. This season, we've launched a new website at badgazepod.com. There you can find our back catalogue of episodes, a link to support us on Patreon, and t-shirts. Beautiful t-shirts that say Bad Gaze or Evil Twink Energy in black on white or white on black. They cost 20 euros plus shipping, and 2 euros from each purchase goes to The Outside Project, a grassroots group that has organized a collectively run community LGBTIQ plus crisis and homeless shelter and community center, the first of its kind in the UK. And for our Patreon donors, we're adding new levels. For $5 a month, we'll send you our monthly newsletter of recommended reading, and high levels get free shirts. Thanks so much for your support. Again, all that good stuff, Patreon. T-shirts, episode archive is available at badgazepod.com and linked in the show notes. That's badgazepod.com. So the Boston school busing crisis is kind of not even resolved. No, not at all. Um, As I said, Boston remains one of the most racially segregated cities um, in the United States. Um, And it's important to note that the, the point here is not that the working class white people who uh, protested violently on the streets of Boston who committed many horrifying, uh, violent, racist acts. The point is not to excuse that behavior. Uh, the point is instead to say that the people sitting in the suburbs also aren't off the hook, right? That the racism of constructing a system in which um, mostly white and much wealthier suburbs run school districts on the basis of property values and when you think about that, there's a sort of doubly racist aspect because property values in the United States um, are intimately connected to the federal government's history of supporting uh, home lending for white people and undermining it for black people and actually redlining black people out of the areas where uh, federal home mortgage guarantee, uh, guarantees could be offered. And that went on for years and years and years. And that's how uh, one of the uh, foundations of the racial wealth gap in the United States is that in uh, the 1930s and 1940s and 1950s, when federal policy was developed to encourage home ownership, and again, for most working class people, home ownership is the way to build wealth because you have this home and it's something that you can kind of hold onto and pass down and it's where sort of most of your wealth lives. Uh, white people were encouraged to participate in that program and black people were written out of it explicitly. Um, and so then that leads to this... Um, racial discrepancy in terms of property values. And then when the school systems are founded on property values, then all of these different elements of social reproduction, it's where you live, it's how you're being educated, are all segregated based on this incredibly potent combination of class and race. But then uh, because school integration is only ever looked at on the level of the individual city, people who live in the suburb, which isn't in the same city, don't get integrated too. And so then it, you have this school integration, which actually 
would benefit everybody, you have this sort of perfect way to turn uh, working class white people against it in the city and to turn them sort of reactionary uh, because you make the comparison as was often made. You know, Judge Garrity lives out in the suburbs and he's not sending his kids to these schools. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's kind of how all of this stuff, um, all of this stuff kind of fits together and plays together. Um, and then so then when you have a financial crisis that then is based on this same uh, kind of uh, mortgage lending policy uh, and therefore has a disproportionate effect on black and brown people and black and brown homeowners were targeted in often explicitly racist ways for some of the worst mortgage products that were sold during the financial crisis. They also tended to have less money, which means that um, subprime mortgages were more likely to include them even if there wasn't explicit racial discrimination going on, which there was. Um, that sort of set the stage for this 2008 crisis being a wipeout in terms of uh, black wealth in the United States, and it was. And in fact, in the 2016 election, I already mentioned that uh, one of the sort of biggest Obama to Trump uh, predictors was uh, whether there were a lot of homes uh, that were foreclosed upon in a given uh, county or a different in a given area. Um, another group of people who stayed home is there were thousands of uh, working class voters in the Midwest who stayed home. Um, basically claiming that uh, they had nothing to vote for. Um, and many of them have been interviewed since then. I think the New York Times sent people out into Milwaukee to interview people who didn't vote and asked if they regret it, and they said no. I mean, I know we're talking a lot about mortgages uh, on a podcast that's supposed to be about gays, uh, but I think it's just so central to understanding uh, the uh, socioeconomic structure of the U.S. in the past 50 years, um, and Frank had such a hand in shaping it, reacting to it, that I think it's worth kind of getting into. Yeah, and also I guess that the some of the uh, discrepancies between sort of political change within the gay community also break down along the lines of both race and home ownership, right? Absolutely, uh, race and class is another way to put it. Yeah, um, Frank becomes a kind of uh, icon of this eighties, uh, nineties uh, post gay liberation gay rights movement. Uh, and represents in many ways one of the first kind of reconciliations of that gay rights movement with the uh, pinnacle of leadership in the Democratic Party, which at this time, again, was moving sharply to the right on matters of economics um, and maybe somewhat to the left in terms of uh, certain social issues sometimes, but 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 only when it was politically popular. Like, I remember... And I give Frank credit for being very consistent uh, to be on the left on social issues for his entire career. Um, but, you know, it's like this moment in uh, 2011, 2012, when, you know, gay marriage crossed 55% approval in opinion polls. And all of a sudden, every Democrat was tripping over the train of their dress to come out and endorse it. And uh, only four years before, both Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton ran for president, claiming that they had deep moral, you know, Christian opposition to the concept of same-sex marriage, which is obviously absurd that they had to go through that. Um, they had to go through that kind of ringer. But also that the um, the, sh the shift in this post-gay liberation politics towards um, a lot of these rights, for example, uh, gay marriage, is also to do with the transference of wealth and the and, and the possession of homes, for example. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, U.S. v. Windsor, which is the case that uh, strikes down the Defense of Marriage Act, uh, which was a 1996 law which uh, Barney Frank's great ally Bill Clinton signed into law. This is a law that said that 
if any states allowed same-sex marriage, other states could refuse to recognize that marriage. And that's really actually kind of an astonishing imposition on people's rights. Frank voted against it. Clinton, the great moderate who we all had to support in order to win the longer term, signed it into law, um, something he did not particularly have to do, but he did it. Um, the lawsuit that struck that law down, United States versus Windsor, uh, had to do with precisely that. It was a big inheritance uh, that was being uh, transferred from uh, the dead spouse of Edie Windsor to uh, Edie Windsor. And Edie Windsor is a very lovely person, and Edie Windsor should not have to pay a cent more in taxes because she's uh, happened to be gay uh, than because she didn't. But it's important to remember that it's not, you know, it's not like there was this poor sort of widow who's going to be thrown out on the street. Like the foundation of the case was, and certainly the donor support within uh, the gay rights movement was about the fact that this stuff had to do with the transfer of um, kind of big fortune, fortunes from generation to generation or from people to their uh, spouses or what have you. And then I guess Frank's great sort of um, strategic political error in his lifetime is this idea of electability, which is essentially always to shift towards what he perceives as the center grounds just at the moment when the Republican Party uh, is starting to engage in these sort of culture wars, which sees them constantly moving to more extreme right positions. So the sort of Overton window of acceptable political beliefs is being pulled right by Republicans. And then uh, Frank's response is to sort of follow it right rather than resist it. To some extent, yes, but then to some other extent, he is such a figure in the culture wars. I mean, as this openly gay, Massachusetts liberal, visibly Jewish politician, he becomes this hate figure for Republicans on the scale of Nancy Pelosi or someone else like that. I mean, they really, you know, or even Hillary Clinton might be another good example. Um, Hillary Clinton probably even more so, right? Hillary Clinton, in addition to whatever she did in her political career, was also the battleground on which America had its culture war about women working outside the home in a way that was profoundly misogynist, no matter what you think about her actions as a political figure. Um, right? And so a similar thing happens to Barney Frank, where uh, Frank... Um, because he is such a visible uh, sort of element on the left side of the culture war, right? He's got zingers. He's openly gay. Um, he then becomes the brunt of Republican attacks, becomes a symbol of the left, develops credibility on the left, and then is able to sell a lot of these compromises on uh, financial regulation and whatever else. Uh, or, you know, I remember in 2008 when Barney Frank endorsed Hillary Clinton in the primary, it was taken, uh, written about as a sort of left-wing endorsement of Hillary Clinton. And you know, the left-wing credibility there is entirely from what he was and who he was, right, and not uh, sort of what he believed or what he said or what he did. And so in a way, both of those things kind of come together. You've got the running to the center and the culture war kind of wrapped up into one figure. Mm. So, Ben, Barney Frank, bad gay? Complicated. I'm going to say complicated. Um, I cannot shake my residual affection for him. I cannot shake uh, finding him hilarious. Um, I cannot shake um, the conviction that to be who he was and to go through what he went through in the 1980s with that uh, forced coming out uh, represents uh, in many ways an act of heroism. At the same time, I find his record on financial regulation and on some of the broadest questions affecting the American economy to be very difficult to defend. So now's the time in the show when he would normally ask me to list the sources. Uh, because Frank is such a current figure, 
um, the sources are mostly newspaper articles and not books. So the ones that I have already named, uh, Chain of Title, uh, that book by David Dian, I'll name now, uh, Don't Blame Us, the book by Lily Geismer about the Route 128 suburbs, and then also Barney Frank's memoir from 2015 entitled Frank, which has been variously excerpted. Um, other than that, there's a whole list of newspaper articles uh, and sort of uh, web articles in the source notes, and folks can discover that themselves. Um, I don't want to single any out by crediting any individual one of them, but to read them all out would take up another 20 minutes of your time, and that would be unpleasant for all of us. So thanks so much for listening. If you want to follow the show on Twitter, you can do that at BadGazePod. You can follow me on Twitter at BenWritesThings. And you can follow me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy or subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Utopian Drivel, hugh.substack.com. Thanks so much. See you next week. Bye. Bad. 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 Bad.